tonight, the world's foremost expert on Hollywood's classic scary movies. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Well, we'd like to welcome all of our friends and family across the United States and in more than 50 countries around the world, including uh, Nora and Harold in Austria and Alex and Lucy and their lovable creatures in England and Roberto and Stephanie in Munich, Germany. Uh, Gary and I are always honored when you folks uh, take a few minutes out of your very busy schedules to sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, some incredible stories with us. Uh, Tonight, we have uh, with us an incredible human encyclopedia of all things related to Hollywood's classic scary movies. So we're going to welcome Ge- Greg Mank. Well, thank you very much. It's very good to be with uh, you, Richard and Gary, and uh, thank you. And uh, Greg, we're going to let uh, Gary start off uh, because he has uh, some uh, questions about your latest books. Absolutely. Uh, we read uh, one of your books. Uh, oh, yeah. Kind of got us uh, fired up about the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> the very bewitching. The time. very bewitching time of night, uh, which yes. is a great little uh, companion piece after watching uh, the Cat People. So, I mean, tell us a little bit more of uh, some of your writings because you do uh, a lot of factual stuff about films, but uh, you also happen to have some very interesting fiction books as well. Yeah, so gee, it's it's crazy how long ago this addiction goes. I mean, it goes all the way back to when I was six years old, <laughs> when it first set in, and that was I'm originally from Baltimore. And uh, when I was six years old, uh, Shock Theater came on there, and of course uh, they were the old Universal horror films, and Frankenstein was the premiere, and I got hooked then, and kind of stayed hooked for life. Uh, and so some years ago, oh gee, when I say some years, I'm talking about forty uh, years ago, I wrote a book about the Frankenstein films called It's Alive. I then later wrote another book about a uh, book about Carlos and Lagosi, which was appropriately titled Carlos and Lagosi. Uh, but yes, the uh, the most recent books that uh, that have come out there are two. Uh, one is a nonfiction book, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us. Uh, line, of course, comes from Shakespeare and from Hamlet, and um, that book uh, is a behind the scenes account of a number of classic horror films with, with, with some new twists, with some, some new discoveries, some new facts about the backgrounds, uh, problems they had with the censors, uh, how they did at the box office, how, what happened with the making of the movies. Uh, you know, sometimes horror movies are, are uh, unintentionally horror movies because of the way that they're made. They run into so many troubles and so many problems and so many predicaments uh, trying to be produced and to, to come a warning into the world that uh, they actually become horror films on various levels. And um, this uh, covers some of those uh, films, uh, such as uh, Island of Lost Souls and Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London, and so on. That's Angels and Ministers of Grace Defenders from McFarland Publishers. And the second book is actually my first stab at fiction, and that is a book called Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie Pray for Us. And that novel, uh, actually, a large part of it deals with uh, the making, the production of Frankenstein back in 1931, and all the incredibly uh, rich, uh, dramatic, fascinating people who were involved in that film, Boris Karloff, Colin Claude, the director, James Whale, so on and so forth. And in this fictional account, they run afoul of uh, a witch, or a woman who proclaims to be a witch. 
and uh, she becomes somewhat uh, intimately involved with the production and causes all variety of terrible trouble. Uh, and uh, then at the book uh, also has a section in 1967, which of course was the Summer of Love, and this which seems to appear again resurrected uh, and back in Southern California causing all kinds of trouble. So uh, it's, it's a very uh, intense book. Uh, one of the reviews that came out recently about it said, um, uh, I'll read this here, it said, this is a dark, complex tale dealing with guilt, sin, redemption, religious mania, and sexual obsession. So there you are. I tried to cover all the bases <laughs> <laughs> in the book, and uh, it was it was great fun to write, and it was uh, it was fun to uh, fictionalize uh, those characters who I've written about in a nonfiction way for so many years and in so many books, and uh, to uh, kind of mix them up with this uh, entirely fictitious creation of this uh, witch in the story, and uh, and she is definitely a, a bad witch. You know, they're talking to Wizard of Oz, you're a good witch or a bad witch. Well, this guy was definitely a bad witch. So, uh, so it was a lot of fun to do. And it, and it, and, uh, I certainly have, uh, certainly had enjoyed writing it. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was, it was great fun. When you, uh, first started out, did you intend to really load it up with some, uh, background material that was actual, uh, factual from, uh, Hollywood movies? Yes, I figured that, uh, you know, the best way to start to kind of give myself a head start was to try to, you know, they always say, you know, write about what you know uh, when you're writing a novel. And I figured, you know, I certainly know a lot about this and dates and places and names and and, uh, backgrounds and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, it was very interesting to use, uh, you know, what I had learned over the years about these uh, these people uh, to kind of get myself started. And then once that happened, then the uh, fictional characters mixed in. Um, including the hero of the book, whose name is Porter Down, who's a detective. And um, they all mixed in with it, uh, you know, really surprisingly smoothly. I, I really, really had a ball. I kind of hated to turn it in to have it published because I, you know, it was becoming, it was, again, it was becoming an addiction. I thought, oh boy, I get to write more of my book today. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of fall in love with your own characters, you know, when you do this sort of thing. And, oh, um, absolutely. You, you know, yeah, yeah, and uh, as as you know from from your work and from and from the people you've talked with and so on, and and uh, it gets to the point that you think, I can't end this. I have an end that I can't go back and keep you know having fun with it. So, but uh, as it turns out, there are a couple more books uh, in that uh, in that series that are taking form now. So, so I'm um, I'm uh, comforting myself with that as, as it goes along. But it was fun to bring these uh, these characters into the world, and. Um, uh, Great, great, uh, great, great experience for me at this point in my life after all these years of writing nonfiction. Now, for uh, for those listeners who uh, might be interested in this book, where are some places that they uh, might be able to pick up a copy for themselves? They can always go to uh, to Amazon. Uh, Amazon Books is on Amazon Books. And they can also go to my website, which I'll give you right now. And that is uh, com. That's again, www.gregorymank.com. Com. And uh, uh, Frankenstein's Witch is also available through Barnes and Noble, and um, it's out there lurking. So you can uh, you can you can track it down. Yeah. <laughs> now, aside from the books, um, one of the things that uh, really brought you to our attention was the work that you do with your commentary for DVDs. So my question is, how does one get into being a DVD commentator? 
Oh, gee, you have to be asked, really. Um, I, know, I know a lot of people ask that question and say, you know, where do I sign up to do this? And and it's a case, really, of somebody coming along and saying, you know, I, I uh, sort of like what, what uh, you gentlemen are doing. They say, you know, I read something that you wrote about this film, and would you like to uh, develop that into an audio commentary? So um, I've done about 12 or 14, I believe, audio commentaries, and they all were on films that I had, you know, written about extensively and um, had done a lot of research on and was able to, uh, you know, j- j- jump in with what I already knew. And um, they're, um, they're challenging to do because of the fact that, uh, of course, p- different people do them in different ways. But uh, one way I always try to do them is try to make them at least partially scene-specific so that what you're talking about on the commentary is what the person's seeing on the screen at the time that, you know, you're talking about that particular little nugget of information. So it involves an awful lot of timing and uh, cutting and pruning and everything to try to get it to, to work out that way. Uh, but, um, but they are fun. And uh, the, the problem, the, the only, again, you feel, after you do one, you feel like you've actually been in the movie. Um, <laughs> that sounds strange, but you feel like somehow you've bled into the film, you know, right. by the time you finish doing an audio commentary with it, because you're so, you, you, you become so involved with it and watched it so many times and know all the dialogue and you feel like, gee, I was on the set for this film. I, I worked on that movie. Whereas of course, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not at all the case, but, uh, no, it, you get very, very intimately involved with the movie when you do an audio commentary. And, um, um, the only problem with it is that after you have finished with it, it's like you never want to see the movie again. Um, <laughs> no. It's like, you know, every once in a while I'll be you know, changing a channel and the film will on television that I've, you know, that I've done an audio commentary for, for the DVD. And I think, oh, quick, change the channel. You know, I don't, <laughs> yeah. can't, can't, can't go back there again. Um, time. But it, it, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I mean, you still love the film, but it's just that, you know, you, you, you've given it your best shot and try to cover it from every angle. And it's like, um, you know, uh, okay, I, I've been there and done that. This is a, this is a closed chapter. Let's move on. But uh, but no, they are fun to do, and and um, and of course, it's it's uh, it, you know people have been able to uh, uh, pass on a lot of information uh, this way that somebody wouldn't necessarily pick up who wasn't necessarily a big book buyer or book reader. You know, with with the films, they actually actually see the film and and uh, hear the history at the same time. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing that really comes through, uh, especially when we were listening to the commentary for Cat People, is your passion for the film. And to me, and even talking with you right now, you uh, are a person, it seems to me, who is very passionate about the subject material. And uh, I myself am a very big fan of classic horror and, and film in general. And it's always more entertaining and more insightful uh, I think when you have somebody who really appreciates the material, um, where do you think your passion you. comes from? Well, I think that in a lot of ways you under, you, you come to understand what the what the people in the film are trying to do uh, and how deeply they're putting themselves into the work. I mean, now in the case of Cat People, of course, we just start with with the producer Val Luton, uh, and for uh, any of your listeners who may not know, Val Luton was a, a, a young man who uh, joined RKO Studios in, um, in 1942, and his job was to make horror films. Now, he wasn't a, a, a particular big horror fan, but that was the uh, position they gave him. They said, we want you to make horror films. There's only really two requirements that you follow. You have to uh, make it for under $150,000 per film, all right, which, is very, which, which even in those days was very, very low. And you have to make it based on a title test that we do. Now, in the case of Cat People, for example, you know, they passed out flyers in a the theater and said, 
which of these movies would you go to see if you saw the title? And on the list was Cat People. So enough people checked off Cat People that Luton was, um, you know, stuck, if you will, certainly the way he looked at it, mm. stuck with making a movie called Cat People. And, and and it's interesting because he was a great intellectual. He was a historian. He was a poet. He was a he, he was a, you know a, a very very intelligent man and 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 a very sophisticated man. And he was just, as, as the writer DeWitt Bodine, who wrote the screenplay, said, he said, you know, when, when, when Val Luton learned that he was going to make a movie named Cat People, he just was completely, you know, blown away. I mean, he was just so upset. I mean, it was, he thought, you know, <laughs> here, here I am, you know, Val Luton, great wise man of Hollywood. And, you know, here I am, they're making make a movie called Cat People. And, um, you know, he actually, you know, called in Bodine and said, look, if you want to quit, I don't blame you. You know, if you don't, you don't have to write this movie if you don't want to, because right. it, it sounds like it's going to be a horrible movie. Uh-huh. You know, well, and, and of course, what he, what he did was so uh, clever. And so yes. subversive is that he took this movie, which and, and, and which on the surface is about a woman, young woman who fears that she might turn into a leopard or a panther. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, actually what it is, is that it is below the surface. It's the story of a bride who yeah. is fearful that if she consummates her marriage to her husband, yeah. uh, that, you know, uh, she will somehow destroy him. You know, she's, she's frightful. Of, of, of consummating her marriage. She, you can interpret on various different levels as to what her actual personal problems are, but, but actually it's about a bride who's fearful of consummating her marriage. And in those days, the censors would have never allowed a movie like that to be made, but by him masquerading it as a horror film, it got made. And, you know, audiences without necessarily focusing directly on what he was kind of doing behind the scenes, they nevertheless felt it. You know, they felt something's really bizarre going on in this movie uh, when they saw it. So I think in the, in the, in the case of Cat People, I, I really admire Luton because he was a, for one thing, he didn't give up. I mean, you know, he was stuck right. with something he didn't want to do and he didn't give up. He, he decided he would make the absolute best of it. He wouldn't just walk through it. He wouldn't put together a very shoddy movie called, you know, mm-hmm. called Cat People with the usual horror stuff. He wanted to make it as, as, as cleverly and movingly and tragically as he possibly could. And he did. And he made this really, really brilliant film about, you know, sex problems, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, the film came out and it was an enormous success. And then he was kind of stuck making another uh, eight of these particular kinds of movies, all of which were title tested, all of which were supposed to be under $150,000 and so on and so forth. So, you know, you become you become sort of passionately involved in the people. I mean, you think about um you know, what Val Luton had to go through. You think about uh, actors like Karloff and Lugosi, who when they received mail from people, people would say, I think you're absolutely horrifying. Or, you know, I have nightmares about you. <laughs> or you terrify me. Or, you know, uh, in the case of Karloff, doesn't play arse like an old lace and says, you know, I killed that man because he said I looked like Boris Karloff. You know, this sort of thing. And that, you know, they, they, they their fame was that they were frightening men. Right. Uh, that they were able to frighten people. And, you know, how did this sit with them? How did they, how did they make peace with this? I mean, were they, how did, how, how did it go, go down? And so all that was always very, very instrumental with, with me. I was always very fascinated in that aspect of the horror films, maybe more so than I was in the actual horror characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested in the actors and, and the directors and the producers and how they felt about both this very, very strange work that Hollywood was forcing them to do. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the the tragedies about horror movies is that there's such a wonderful level 
of sophistication to the storytelling, especially to some of these old classics that gets overlooked because people just assume because it's a horror movie, it's just something that was thrown together just to make a few bucks. But there really are levels to these stories that go much deeper if people are willing to look. What would you say? Oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, 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 that's exactly the way. And I kind of tried to emulate that, in fact, in the novel I wrote, because, you know, we had to have a title like Frankenstein's Witch because of the mm. fact that we felt it was the only way to attract a readership to it that would necessarily be interested in, in some of the background of the novel. But at the same time, I tried to be very, uh, very keen on putting in the various things I you know noted a little while ago about it, about all the the different uh, human elements and the, 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 you know, the passion, the tragedy and the obsessions and so on and so forth. Um, and so that if somebody does, you know, read it, that they see there's more of this than just a crazy title, you know, and there's yeah. more of this than, than just, uh, um, uh, th- this kind of thing where somebody, you know, is going to pick it up. I mean, I remember one time Elena Verdugo who played in house of Frankenstein, which was a, you know, called a monster rally had the monster and, and the Wolfman and Dracula in it and everything. And she played a gypsy girl. And I said, uh, you know, were you excited when you got this part? And she said, no. She said, the, the horror movies in those days, they were the kind of things that when they came on the screen, everybody in the audience went, woo, you know, very derisively. Yeah. <laughs> and everything, because, you know, they, they, they didn't differentiate. You know, they right. figured a horror movie is a horror movie. You know, watch, look at me, aren't I scared? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, but no, it, it, it re- really required uh, in, 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 those, in those, those, those people working in Hollywood at the time uh, that the, the, the great horror films such as cat people and, and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and the black cat and so many others, you know, it really required somebody who really had uh, a passion for what they were doing. Um, an enormous amount of creativity and, uh, and a lot of gut, you know, to, to, to keep working and, uh, to, uh, to be encouraged to, to make this the best uh, piece of entertainment, uh, that they, they could possibly make. And, um, you know, it's kind of a lesson for everybody in life, really. That you know, if, you know, the, if you're stuck, you know, when you're stuck with something that's not ideal, just do, do your very best and hope for the best, and and uh, you know, go from there. So, so yeah, yeah, it's easy to get involved in the in the kind of you know heroic spirit of these men, which is what they were. They were kind of heroes, you know, making these films and making them as well as they could. Right. Who would you say are the pioneers of of horror when it comes to directors and writers? Who who are your top guys? Well, um, I'm, my favorite is James Whale, of course, who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And, and uh, Whale, for, for example, was exceptionally good at creating lost souls, uh, mm-hmm. as I would put it. And, and if you watch the original Frankenstein, for example, you have sympathy both for the monster maker, who's played by Colin Clive, and you have sympathy for the monster. Uh, who's played by Boris Karloff, you know, you, you don't hiss or boo either one of them, you know, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, you, you understand both of them. You understand what, what uh, Frankenstein is trying to do in creating the monster. And you understand what the monster is trying to do in finding some kind of identity uh, once he comes into the world. Uh, and um, uh, that, you know, these, these people are, are, uh, these characters are misfits perhaps, or uh, very, very strange characters. Uh, and, and literally a monster. Uh, but, uh, you know, they nevertheless, they either have a soul or they're trying to find a soul. And they're, and so therefore you sympathize with them and, and, uh, you, they kind of have the same problems that we all have. Uh, you, you, you figure as you watch the film. And so whale was very, very good at that, that he was able to, to kind of bring this lost soul quality, uh, into, into the films. Um, 
Uh, as far as some of the others, uh, the other great directors of, of, of the time, um, you know, a lot of uh, Jacques Turner, who directed Cat People, mm-hmm. uh, was, was a marvelous director. Uh, Robert Wise, uh, who, of course, was a very, very successful director, won two Oscars for, you know, Sound of Music and West Side Story. Uh, and, uh, you know, but started off working for Luton and directed part of Curse of the Cat People and The Body Snatcher and oh, yeah. films like that. You know, all these men were were at the top of their game, and um, you know they brought enormous talent and vitality uh, and and insight uh, to the films. So, so all those directors, all the directors who did that, um, who were able to, to to bring that to make it happen. Uh, Todd Browning, of course, has taken a lot of flack who directed Dracula in mm. recent years, but he was marvelous at atmospherics. All right, he wasn't very good necessarily at at kind of penetrating the psyche of the characters that right. he presented, but, but he could, you know, he, he could dress up a horror film like nobody else could as far as putting in the, putting in the, the, the spiders and the castles and, you know, armadillos and all kinds <laughs> of crazy stuff that, that he put in the films. Uh, so, so, so they were great. Um, Edgar G. Elmer, who directed the black cat, uh, was a, was a brilliant man. And, um, you know, uh, was it was remarkable what he was able to get into that film uh, as far as the amount of uh, uh, depravity, really, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that he managed to get into a 65-minute movie, um, you know, with necrophilia and incest and devil worship and all that sort of thing. And um, and he not only managed to get it in there, but he managed to get it in quite tastefully and, uh, you know, really very, very resplendently and smoothly and and um, so any, all these directors who kind of show a little bit of themselves, I think, when they direct, not in a showy way and in, in, in the sense that they're showing off what they can do, but just that it's just kind of a natural part of their work that it manifests itself within the movie. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that uh, level of creativity is amazing when you think about uh, back then in the day, uh, they had to bring these uh, productions uh, uh, in on time and within budget. Oh, mercilessly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mercilessly. I mean, if, 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 if any of these directors ever went, you know, even they didn't have to go too elaborately over budget or over, over schedule and they'd never work again, you know, kind of thing. I mean, they were, it was, it was an absolute uh, necessity, as mm-hmm. you say, uh, very good point uh, that, that, you know, they, they, they didn't have all day to sit down and figure out how this was going to work out or, you know, they had to, they had to kind of, you know, fly by the seat of their pants and hope they got it right in the little bit of time uh they had to go and with a little bit of money they were given to make it happen oh absolutely and you know it's funny we were just talking about todd browning and dracula um a few years ago i picked up one of the uh, anniversary editions of the dvd and i didn't realize it but there's actually two versions of dracula one of them which was done in spanish it was filmed at the same time as todd browning's and i believe they said they used all of the sets and everything in the evenings, mm-hmm. and they would film the entire thing. Talk about a money saver. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very shrewd on Universal's part mm-hmm. to have done that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was very, very clever. And, um, you know, and, and they imported um, Spanish actors for the, uh, or, you know, for the, uh, for the leading roles. And, um, and it worked out very, very favorably for the studio. Yeah. Absolutely. Good point. Well, I tell you what, uh, <clears throat> um, Greg, uh, I'm looking at the very witching time of night now right before me, dark alleys of classic horror cinema. And <laughs> this has mm-hmm. quickly, quickly become one of my favorite reads. Um, Thank you. And not, uh, not simply because of the cat people, but uh, 
there there's just a lot of other uh, movies in there that um are just unbelievable is there some part of this book uh some uh, films in here that perhaps you enjoyed writing about or uh, bringing information uh, to us uh, more than others well it, it's it's interesting that you asked that question one of the chapters i really enjoyed doing was there's a chapter in there called John Carradine and his traveling circus. And this sort of hits onto what we're talking about with horror films. And that was that, um, you know, the great character actor, John Carradine, you know, appeared in a lot of horror films and eventually was kind of known, uh, you know, more than anything else for his horror films, which was ironic. But in, 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 during the world war two years, um, he decided again about talking about a man with a dream, uh, he decided he wanted to create his own Shakespearean stage company because that was what he really loved. He was just passionate about Shakespeare. And so he wanted to create his own Shakespeare company and he wanted to, uh, uh, to tour in it and he wanted to open on Broadway in it. Oh. And, um, uh, so he, he had to finance it himself. He had to put it, he had to find all the money himself. And one of the ways that he got the money to put, to put on his, uh, his Shakespeare company, which he called John Carradine and his Shakespeare players, was that he made horror films, and uh, he made films such as even at, even at Monogram, which made you know the the sort of poverty row horror films, and you know he made a picture there called Voodoo Man with Beta Lugosi, and he made a picture there called Return of the Ape Man with Beta Lugosi, and he was he was literally making these films by day and rehearsing and performing his company at night, um, and um, in one case in the in the case of Voodoo Man. Um, you know, he actually, uh, started shooting Voodoo Man on a Monday and opened his company in San Francisco that the following Sunday, right? I mean, it was that frantic, uh, what he was doing. Oh, wow. So it, yeah, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And so what happened was there was a whole different, uh, uh, definition, if you will, of horror films, which in the Carradine's case was, you know, I did them for the money to create my Shakespeare company. Um, and so people would come to him all the time in later years and say, what can you tell us about making Voodoo Man? Or what can you tell us about making Return of the Ape Man? Or what can you tell us about making Captive Wild Woman, which, you know, he turned a, a starlet, you know, into an ape woman and, and these sort of, these sort of films. And, uh, Carradine really didn't remember them at all. <laughs> or if he did, he didn't admit it. Really? You know, his explanation was, he said, these, you know, I, I did a lot of films back in those days and every cent I made. I paid to the actors in my company. I paid to the costumers. I paid to the to the to the railroads, you know, to get us from one engagement to another. Uh, he never did get to Broadway with the company. He wanted to open there on Shakespeare's birthday in 1944, but he never. Um, he, he, that didn't happen. Um, but you know, in in that case, uh, horror films for him. Um, I mean, he absolutely did his best. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, he never walked through anything, and he didn't walk through any of the horror films. But he was making those movies purely for the for, for the money it, they paid him in order to translate uh, to, to, to uh, you know translate that into into uh, an investment for his stage company. And so when we talk about people who you know brought a lot of love and passion and creativity to to the genre like Val Luton and as to what they did, um, Carradine is sort of a, a different case. I mean, he 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 was using them for money. But the the, the bottom line is. He still acted in them as if he thought they were all Academy Award worthy movies. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you know, he 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 he, uh, uh, he he plays a mentally enfeebled character in Voodoo Man, and I mean, he he he's he's 
he's in, in a way he's brilliant. Um, I, you know, I mean, he doesn't just shuffle through it or, or uh, go through it in such a way that, uh, you know, that he doesn't seem to be caring about what he's doing. He really throws himself into the role and he figures he's doing this, then he leaves and then he drives out to Pasadena at the Pasadena Playhouse. And, you know, that night he goes on and, and plays, you know, Othello or Iago or, or uh, cause he alternated in both roles or Hamlet or Shylock or something of this nature. And, um, Nevertheless, you know, it, that would have been what he really loved, but he never stinted on what he was doing, uh, meanwhile, in the studios. So, so that, was a, that was kind of an unusual chapter to do. It was a different, different, uh, different path for horror films yeah. uh, and a different, different, kind of, um, different kind of approach. And something yeah. that most people aren't aware of or oh, never I wasn't. Of. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that at all, but that's, that's really fascinating. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and... And another one, thank you. And another one that was very sad was uh, was, was the, the the case of Helen Chandler, who uh, it was the leading lady in Dracula. And there's a long uh, uh, interview in there with her sister-in-law, who was her best friend. And they talk about what a tragic life Helen Chandler had, and that you know this was her life was real hard. All right, I mean it, 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 she had a, an alcohol problem. She had. Uh, 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 all, all kinds of terrible mishaps. She was she was burned in a fire that that uh, scarred one side of her face. She uh, uh, you know she her career ended long long before she died. Um, and so there was a woman who you know both starred in a classic horror film, but also whose life was much more horrible and horrific than the classic horror film Dracula in which she appeared. Mm. So I felt very, very sorry for her. She's sort of a favorite of mine, and I, I feel, you know, um, great sympathy for what she had to go through. And um, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was meaningful to me to try to pay tribute to her in the book on learning what, uh, you know, what kind of a tragic life she had to lead. And anytime we talk about someone like that in our books, they're really immortalized forever. <laughs> they are. They are. And she is. And she was such a beautiful lady in her youth. And, 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 you know, if people watch Dracula now or any of the films she made in the early 30s, she, I think she always really makes an impression because she has that kind of, you know, otherworldly uh, aura that uh, some of the actresses stylistically had back in those days. You know, they had the, they, there was just something about them that, uh, you know, sort of like Archangel quality that some of them had. And uh, she certainly had it. And she was, um, you know, and she was a great stage actress. She had, I mean, marvelous stuff on Broadway and and so on and so forth. But she just, um, you know, it just was like some horrible cloud was over for most of her most of her life. And uh, uh, it was it was very, very sad. Well, uh, Greg, uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, you and Gary and I absolutely love the movies, especially the classic movies. And all the better if they're the scary ones. Uh, not only love, but I think uh, all three of us could say uh, that they are indeed our passion. Uh, can you return next week? Um, we're just about uh, at the end of our episode tonight, but can you return next week so we can continue? Yes, with... I'd be delighted. Thank you. <laughs> and I tell yes. you, I pro I'll give you a promise. We will start off with our own John Carradine story for you. Oh, absolutely, because oh, we great, do have one. Great, I love Carradine stories, so that would be... <laughs> I will be looking forward to that. Uh, oh, very good. So, well, until then, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and this is just the beginning of an incredible story. Come back next week for part two. Ho, 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 ho.